Dogs, swab the decks and hoist the sails. The guns on board be neat in some proper manner. Pieces of eight and a fine wench on your arm. If you work, be not too shoddy. Careful not to flounder too badly, though, or you may have to dance the hempen jig. As we see you to Davy Jones, the Jeffy, my boy. On with the show. Well, shiver me timbers. To our listeners from across all regions of the planet, welcome once again aboard the Robin Hood, flagship to the world's one and only cooperatively inspired charity podcast network, WPRPN. Broadcasting to the stars and beyond. Well, here on the Korean Peninsula... We finally managed to be granted a reprieve from this summer's record-breaking Asian heat wave. You're listening to episode 119 of Pirate Radio Podcasts. I'm your host, as always, the ship's chief communications officer, Jaffe Ryder. British expat Albert Bangkok Jack has written 18 books on subjects ranging from history, politics, religion, and war. Exploring the origins of well-known phrases in the English language, his first release, Red Herrings and White Elephants, became a huge 2004 international bestseller. Helping to further launch Jack's publishing career, the book was serialized by the UK Sunday Times, remaining in their bestseller list for well over a year. In a life's journey, which to this point has taken him from the UK to South Africa to Thailand and various points beyond, Jack has cultivated a dedicated passion for all things, including intrigue, inquiry, beauty, and truth. Former guest of both Sky TV and the BBC, over the course of our approximate 90-minute exchange, we'll aim to traverse a whole host of areas with Albert, including everything from world travel, social media, political Islam, George Orwell, historical revisionism, Wikipedia censorship, conspiracy theories, and, as always, much, much more. Having recently launched his own exclusive BitChute and Spreaker podcast channels, he's currently working on getting his head more fully wrapped around all things Minds.com. And that is exactly what we were working on just a few minutes ago with Albert Bangkok, Jack, here behind the scenes trying to help lend yeah, him a hand. difficulties were offline. Well, it looks like, yeah, OBS has got some issues, perhaps trying to, well, let's just hang on with that. Let's see if this helps. If we stop sharing, of course, you're not going to pick up an echo that way. Are people via YouTube stating that we're offline? Uh, we just hardly got online. Yeah, I'm showing it's the streams offline. Somebody said it's buffering. Somebody else says it's down. I believe... Now I'm saying it's showing it's back live. Sure, that's exactly where we should be based on what the uh, 
navigation control instrument panel here is indicating. So fingers crossed, everything will pretty much continue along here for the next 90 minutes or so without too much of a hitch. Welcome everybody, episode 119 with Albert Bangkok Jack, an expat British author now living in Thailand. It's great to have made your virtual acquaintance here over the past couple days. Uh, Jack, welcome to Skullport Harbor, and uh, hopefully we'll manage to get you on deck here and on board the Robin Hood without too much trouble, given your attempt at presenting a bit of a pirate story. Do you got anything up your sleeve there at the moment? How's it looking? Well, good morning to you all. Can you hear me clearly? You're sounding great. Okay, good. Good to know. Um, pirate stories already, so soon. One of the things that intrigued me about pirates is that in the beginning, of course, in the early days, they're all romanticized now, aren't they? Pirates of the Caribbean has changed everything about their pretty barbaric nature. Originally, they were, they were called privateers, really, and um, were quite legal. It used to be the English or the British government's policy to uh, allow anybody basically flying their flag to attack and loot and rob any ship belonging to uh, any nation that they were at war with. Often that was Spain, of course, and, and Holland in many cases. During the days of the, the 1600s of Charles II, it was their policy, actually, to um, accredit people like Captain Kidd and Captain Morgan as privateers, rather than using the word pirate. And they were then quite legally allowed to go out and plunder whatever they could and bring it back for the, for the realm, bring it back for the crown's coffers. One man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist kind of deal. Captain Kidd, for example, although he's probably the most famous of all the boyhood pirates, I mean that by our, our boyhood stories, Captain Kidd was the pirate, wasn't he, in the early movies? Well, in fact, he was never really a pirate at all. He was a Crown-sponsored privateer and uh, accredited by the British government. He was a sea captain with a first-class record for, for over 40 years, by the way. It was really dodgy, was however, the way that his mission and operation all came together uh he had enemies out on the high seas there's no doubt about that and in fact i could maybe share a link with you later we've uploaded an audiobook dealing with the life story of captain kidd so great deal of intrigue and the way that the financial backers were working from behind the scenes as you say Definitely the crown at the time seems to have had a hand in things, although they wanted for whatever reason to try and give off the impression that they were really didn't, I suppose. So there was really, it was really murky, the whole way that things came together with his mission and enterprise. And I think it tells us something about who the real crooks of history were, because um, it was quite clear from the records, that, particularly in the case of Captain Henry Morgan, in his example, when England made a treaty, the Treaty of Madrid with Spain, to end the wars over the South American provinces or Southern American provinces, his actions were then in retrospect deemed illegal and he was arrested and thrown in the tower, despite not knowing about any treaty and despite being given a privateer's license to go out and plunder whatever he could from Spanish ships. By the time he returned, the king had made a treaty with Spain and he was now regarded a criminal without even realising it, a pirate rather than a privateer. So it was pretty dangerous times for anybody adopting those flags. How about that? So, and this is Henry Morgan that you're talking about now, not Captain Kidd. No, I'm talking about Henry Morgan, the famous captain who later had his name accredited to the rum, Captain Morgan of the of the rum fame. That's right. But 
I, I had no idea that he was actually thrown under the bus, as it were. I, I was aware that Captain Kidd had set out on a mission to engage in hunting down pirates, as many as he could, I think, through the Bahama region and along the east coast of the, the Americas and so forth. But Henry Morgan, I did not realize that he met with that said fate. So, uh, hey, Well, that's the thing. that The English king or the British king was out hunting down pirates of other nations, the Spanish pirates and the South American pirates and even the Barbary pirates, Islam pirates from the Mediterranean were all fair game. They were all for being captured, tried, you know, hung from the yard arm, quartered or whatever. But the English pirates, his own, were, were not called pirates. They were called privateers. They were out with the king's letter, with the king's mandate to go and do whatever they wanted. Therefore, they were protected by the, the English Navy, the most powerful in the world at the time. And it was only when the king then made treaties with various nation states and various other monarchs and kings and queens that he reversed his position and said, OK, we'll, we'll, we'll make a peace treaty here with Spain, the king of the queen of Spain, as it was at the time. And when Morgan comes back, we'll clap him in irons and throw him in the tower. Isn't that something? So I've definitely got a little more homework then to do, as I'd imagine some of our listeners do. Big shout out to the gang that we've managed to assemble here to this point. Joined us for this week's live stream, episode 119 with Albert Bangkok Jack. Rob the Man, Free Spirit Press, Sons and Daughters of Liberty, of course. Thought I had seen Johnny Canuck around here somewhere earlier. But, all right, well, there we go. And episode 111, you turn that around. Actually, it's interesting. I'm not sure how Thailand is, but that is actually Il Ilgu here in Korea. 119 is their 911, as it is back in the West. And, uh, you know, you look at the synchronicity, it's really quite something. I'm not sure if you're into the whole Jungian thing, that concept, synchronicity or not. But uh, here we go with you on this show with us, episode 119, a reverse 911. And you've got something to say about the whole September 11th thing, which I'm sure once we get you wound up, it'll be hard to, uh, <laughs> it'll be hard to, uh, shut you down, of course. Let's just leave that aside for the moment. We did have this earlier stream just this past week, show segment 21 of World Pirate Radio News, and that was on the 21st of August, something that, uh, Drew Lima picked up on and noted. Speaking of which, uh, Drew, are, are you, uh, I think by this stage, let's just take a look at things here. It appears as if, yes, just uh, looking through the, well, it's a spyglass, I suppose, not really necessary. We've got here the uh, portal up to the top. What do we see? We've got, Drew, yeah, it looks like you have actually managed to make your way somewhat up through the ship's rigging. How are things going? What does everything look like there from your vantage point? Uh, we're just working on getting ourselves out into calmer waters and away from that damn Kraken. Well, we weren't sure. Uh, a bit of a shaky start there with the OBS and the the web stream, of course, losing our connection for whatever reason, maybe because we had the screen sharing option in place there via Skype. Uh, we've got another full hour and 15 minutes at least here with Albert Jack. I'm not sure if he's going to actually have the time or interest in sticking around for the one-hour Rogues Gallery after show. We'll maybe talk about sure, that. Or, well, we'll think about that as, as things go on here. I'm just wondering, the best place maybe to start, of course, is to 
provide listeners with a bit of an overview of your literary history. 2004 was when you launched your first, well, you published your first book, and that was met with rave reviews, and you managed to pick up pretty decent you know, sales as well, too, all around the world, red herrings and white elephants. So yeah, well, let's just get into that a little bit and let listeners know who is Albert Bangkok Jack. Red Herrings and White Elephants wasn't actually my first book in 2004. I've been writing, if you like, as a professional since 99. And I had three books before that, but Red Herrings and White Elephants was the first big bestseller. So it didn't take me long to get there. And, and, and getting there at all was obviously a fantastic result. Um, what happened is I wrote a book before, um, or the book right before there was quite successful. It was a band biography. I, I'll tell you the band if you like, but I'm sure many of your listeners wouldn't recognize them it was an english band what i noticed as as the writer i noticed that um you know every writer published writer will tell you that they we would always go into the bookshops and have a look at our books on the shelves and anybody who tells you they don't do that i, I don't believe you i don't believe them at all so you do and i found out with this band biography it was always up at the back of the shop on the third floor in the music section tucked away alphabetically and I used to come back out of the shops and look at all the books on the front tables, all the gift books, if you like, all the non-fiction books that were piled high on the front tables by the tills. And I was thinking, I, there must be a way I can do that. It's non, if it's non-fiction, that I can do it the same as anybody else. I don't have to make up a story like whatever. If they can do it, I can do it too. And it, it took me about three months to come up with an idea. And it wasn't until one day I was in a pub and it was Christmas time, so a couple of months after the previous book had come out. And it did well, quite well, by the way, so we were all happy with it. I'm looking for a new subject. And a friend of mine had had, a, had a, an enormous hangover, and he came into the bar on a Saturday morning lunchtime. Long story short, somebody suggested a hair of the dog, which we know is another drink to take away the effects of last night's drink, hair of the dog. The barman, who was Colombian but spoke very good English, said, dog, hair? Dogs aren't allowed in here kind of thing. So we had a laugh. And why do we say things like that? Why do we use those idioms and phrases that the, the words that we're using mean nothing to do with the conversation that we're having? And yet, as, an English, as a native English speaker, we instinctively know exactly what somebody means. You know, got you over a barrel, tough as old boots, turn a blind eye. And there are thousands of them. And so we sat down and, and had a conversation. And within five minutes, I'd said to a friend of mine sitting in, I remember the pub very well because it changed my life. That's the book, isn't it? That's the book. It's the book explaining where all these idioms come from and how they evolved and became part of our language. And I literally went away, left them. I'm off. I'm going to go and do some research. I'm, I'm out of here. See you later. And within a couple of hours, I'd written the synopsis. It was about 10 or 15 of them. Sent it into my publisher. And this never happens normally, but the unknown happened. Normally you wait months or weeks or whatever for a reply. People have a board meeting and discuss things and do we like this idea, etc. I got a phone call the following Monday morning, 9.30, and the minute he got in and read the email, we love it. Said, Are there enough for a book? I said, there's enough for two or three. He said, contract's in the post, get on with it. And that became Red Herrings and White Elephants. And um, that book, crikey, within, within days it was in the not just the front tables of bookshops, it was in the front windows of Oxford Street in London. It was uh, sold something like 120,000 copies in its first week. It was nuts. Uh, and that launched the career. That's really amazing and wonderful, of course, too, that you made the most, dare I say, capitalized on that opportunity, you know, using your intellectual ability, of course, to launch this project and lo and behold, just making the 
connections there that you did with your publisher, as I recall you saying, that everything seemed to unfold quite smoothly. And I think it's a whole series now of books that you've managed to put together since this time about, is it 14 or 15? It's nearer 18 now, but that, that was nuts. That was only the beginning. I mean, just after Red Herrings had come out and was in the bestsellers list and was all over the news and in all the newspapers. I was, I was in New, it was me traveling on the train, going to work as as usual up into London, and uh, there's people sitting on the train opposite me with my picture in their in the Daily Mail, and they're turning. Is this you? So yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know that. No one tells you it's coming when you get a full page book review with your photographs in the newspapers. And so that was all pretty crazy. And after that, it got even more so. I mean, um, I went to see an agent. I thought the first thing I better do is get some proper representation here. I went to see a literary agent, and within three weeks or weeks he had offers that I couldn't understand from publishers like Penguin, Random House, Harper Collins, and so we eventually signed a deal with Penguin that got me working for the next two years on two more. That in turn turned into a six book deal. So I was working with Penguin on that from twenty eleven in the end or twenty twelve. And since that time, what have you been up to then exactly? The duration, the six years that have uh, unfolded since that point by then i was living in south africa and i kind of semi-retired i think 2013 because after penguin my editor from penguin left and she joined another firm and i did another couple of books there with a smaller publisher it's hard work you know writing especially doing one every year and and then of course in 2010 your book from 2006 is being released in america and australia and korea or somewhere and you know you're then having to do all the interviews again which is great, obviously, but on a subject that you wrote three or four years ago and can't really remember too much about. You're having to revise everything for every interview and reread, and, and it all becomes quite hard work. And it sounds like I'm complaining. I don't mean to be, but suddenly you've got different translations. You've got 50-odd different publishing contracts with 50-odd different publishers in different parts of the world, and it's hard to keep a track of what's going on. So I figured I'd take a couple of years off in 2013, which is when I moved from South Africa to Vietnam, wrote a couple of books my own volition all right well one of the things that we wanted to ask you about then albert was your not just your travel we put you in the category of travel writer is is one of the things that kind of came to mind i'm not sure how comfortable you are with that exactly oh and let me just say before i forget it's a good thing that typhoon that was bearing down on the korean peninsula here just the other day managed to fizzle out and just magically disappear you yourself of course have experienced connection or electrical problems from time to time as well in thailand where the power just suddenly goes out is that not the case yeah it is i'm afraid it still seems to be a third world country in that sense it's so great in so many ways but you just have to get used to every so often you know your power will go off and that means your fan and your air conditioning is all off and your your wi-fi is down and and not often, maybe two or three times a year, but it's just one of those things happens. And so you go out for a walk or go and get some food and you find a bunch of guys digging a big hole in the road or putting a ladder up to the wire cables up on the up on the top. Uh, and it's all fixed within a, I don't know, couple of hours. But it's a hazard. Part of living in Thailand. Talking about travel writing, though, I, I did kind of have an attempt at that, which I haven't really done much with. The book is published on Kindle. But when I first left, South Africa, where I'd been for so long and just moved on my own, just upped and went. I'd never been to Asia in my life. And I got this opportunity to take over somebody's rental on a house in Hanoi for a year. 
And I thought, well, I've got two books to write for myself. This is not for a publisher, subjects I wanted to do. One of them ended up being a book on the future and the new world order and called Last Man in London. Anyway, so I took these two projects and packed my golf clubs and a couple of suitcases and put all my stuff into storage in Cape Town. And um, off I went to Hanoi and spent a year there and received so many messages. I was not really even using social media at that time, only fairly new to it. I had so many emails and messages, you know, what are you doing in Hanoi? How's it going? What are you up to? Blah, blah. So I just decided to write a, a weekly diary or blog, if you like, or um, article or feature or uh, just about everything that I discovered and how I found food and people and the funny things, encountering a culture for the first time that I'd ever even met Asian people, especially not from Asia. So this was 2013, five years ago. And I ended up collating them together and publishing an ebook called Your Man in the Orient. And the idea was, I think there was about 15 chapters there over about 12 months. And I was going to continue that with my Thailand experiences once I came here, which is something I've yet to get round to. But you can call that travel writing, I suppose. Your Man in the Orient, Albert Jack. Absolutely. And that reminds us, you've got a great biography uh, page here, albertjack.com, with a whole host of stories basically installments that you've added here uh, you've also got your speaker channel too which is what initially attracted or drew me to uh reaching out and uh, inviting you to join us here uh, i guess to this point you have not had anyone else do so via minds but uh that's one of the places where we find a fair number of our guests hopefully over the course of the next hour or so what we've got remaining here you'll manage and I'm, you've already done it to this point by far really you know hitting the ball out of the park i would say in a, in a big way because you've just frankly have so much to offer it's like the gift that keeps on giving well it's kind of other things that i wanted to do with with the spreaker podcast actually and and most of that then gets fed through to bit shoot and youtube either as a as a video that i'll make um or as a as a podcast just a vocal voice recording but one of the things i wanted to do before i started it before i promoted it anywhere even on my own facebook page and my own social media accounts was to get some content so it's i haven't really done that much i mean there must be about now 20 or 25 different podcasts that i've done and i've now started to promote that over the last month or at least share the links and already it's had something like 4,000 listens. And I think on BitChute, it's up to about 8,000 listens or views. So it does kind of work. And, and I think it was a much better idea to have at least a catalog of where people can click through and choose something rather than just have one up there and send one out. To now have 20 odd and then start promoting that seems to have done the trick in the sense that people are coming, listening to one or two or three and then sharing or whatever they do. And it seems to work. It's, it's worked better that way than to try and to to kick off with just one and then grow from there. I thought I'd just, well, April I started, so keep quiet about it for three or four months, just get some content up there and then see what people think after that. Oh, it looks great. We've got the link actually posted up there in the YouTube chat box now, so we will encourage, of course, all the viewers, listeners, what have you, to definitely check it out. Uh, one of the things I was just going to didn't have a chance to finish there exactly, but we didn't have the greatest experience with one of our earlier guests. We have interviewed a number of people from the UK. Most of the time, it's been pre-recorded because of the time zone issues. Thankfully, you're in Thailand, so you're only two hours behind us here in Seoul. But 
Al Zombie. What a character. What a Muppet. Well, I never finished telling you earlier either the chat that we had a couple days ago. Yeah. Well, he was just this Antifa troll, basically, who clearly was somebody who needing to stay on his medication in a big way. He ended up totally unloading and unleashing in the most extreme sort of way with this one particular thread dealing with the Lolita Express, Jeffrey Epstein, and trying to just hammer away talking about Trump and how it's all, you know, Trump was involved in that whole sordid business of uh, trafficking young underage women and engaging in sexual relations with them and so forth. You know, not saying anything about Epstein or any of the others, including Alan, what I like to refer, who I like to refer to as Douche Witch, is the kind of nickname that we've come up there for the guy. We have talked to, interviewed others from the UK who have been refreshing. It's just that it was kind of laughable and and sad at the same time, the way that uh, we just simply didn't take the bait, as it were, with his trolling, which even, as you know, makes these people even more upset. So, and this all took place yeah. after we finished talking to him. And you know the type, I'm sure, the the real radical kind of loony left that exists in England. I didn't realize he was Antifa until after the fact. And I asked him, because he had this thing regarding swastikas, how they were so terrible, of course. And I said, well, would you react the same way as seeing the hammer and sickle? He seemed to say that he would, but I'm, I really kind of do wonder about that. So anyways. What about a Che Guevara t-shirt? Exactly, that's right. Anyways, it's a, it is a shame that my um my nation of the rational and reasonable, being England or Great Britain, is suffering from what I call the epidemic of stupid, which is the title of one of the uh, articles I wrote. Which, by the way, you can find on the website under a, a heading we call the Jack Report. So, whilst a lot on the website deals with my books and content of it and some current news, if I'm interested in it, generally speaking, if I'm writing anything myself. I'll put it in my on my website under the Jack Report, so that comes up as my own articles. And we've got headlines in there. For example, I'm looking at it now. Generation Idiot Strikes Again. Should bacon be banned because it's offensive to Muslims? Things about the Putin crime gang are in there. A lot about the New World Order, which is what my book in Last Man in London is all about. It's a crazy into the future, and it's set in about 30 or 40 years' time. And it's how things are then obviously including fake news and the Orwellian rewriting of history, is how things are then and how we got there. So it does come back and deal with the other, another article here. Why Democrats against slaveholders is an oxymoron. Dear snowflakes, stop wasting everybody's time. So that's the kind of uh, article that I've been writing on my own, which is, is getting a huge response. Are liberals too stupid to know they're stupid? And there's also plenty about Antifa in there as well and how these annoying, as you say, lunatic leftist because the ranting and raving before the trump election i was neither really left or right or don't even consider myself either way either more like fairly a rational observer i would hope since the trump election you have had this epidemic of raving lunacy coming from the left i mean some of the things you see and read and some of the things you're being told i was sitting in a bar not far from where i live here about six months ago and somebody sat down there's a table of guys there was about seven or eight of us a thai bar just by the road and somebody sat down who I'd never met before. The name Trump came up, and he immediately went, paedophile. And I said, excuse me? He said, bloke's a paedophile. It's well known. I said, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. What evidence do you have for that? A complete stranger who I'd never met before, who's clearly angling for a fight, or at least wanted to spread this 
disgraceful, disgusting type of name calling and make it as bad as he possibly could. And then he banged on about the Epstein and the Lilithris, blah, blah, blah. And I said, hang on, hang on a second. You can't just don't sit down with a bunch of strangers and start making accusations that you can't substantiate. You know, what evidence do you have apart from what somebody's told you or you've heard on CNN or read on some bizarre website somewhere? And of course, he didn't have anything. And it got to the stage where all I kept saying was, where's the evidence for that? Where's the evidence for that? Don't sit at this table and keep just blurting stuff out like you've got Tourette's of the left. But in the end, he started crying and left and probably called the police, I think. Turns out he was a teacher in England, English. And you think, well, Christ, if these people are responsible for educating our youngsters, no wonder they're all going to hell in a handcart. Very politically correct. Very PC. And, you know, one of the things with Al Zombie. No, no, no. The teacher, the teacher, <laughs> the teacher. Chairman Mao knew political correctness. Adolf Hitler knew political... Any dictatorship, they, it's all about political correctness, that you either toe the party line and you go with the official narrative, which is that's it's politically correct. Whatever the official narrative is, is by definition politically checkmark correct. And if you're a heretic... And also by definition fascist. Well, of course, very totalitarian, authoritarian, these labels that we want to apply. What I mean, it's the best that we can do, really. We did talk about, once again, the brief chat we had the other day, Orwell's uh, famous essay dealing with politics and the English language, how these labels yeah. fluctuate. And there's really, it's like, well, what, where is the meaning in these labels? Liberal, conservative, terrorist, you know, really the inherent substance, you know, the meat of the matter as it were. And that's one of the things, Al Zombie, all he could do, every second word out of his mouth was fascist, fascist, fascist. Two minutes of hate with Al Zombie sort of deal. And the main thing I regret from our conversation, I was very tolerant, of course. Anytime we have a guest on board, we do not go out of our way to be combative or confrontational. It's not ambush journalism. We don't try to make our guests look stupid or ridiculous in any way. They you know, they're free to present themselves in whatever manner they like. And it's up to our guests, or rather mm -hmm. the, the listeners and viewer, viewing audience to decide what to make of them. But yeah, fascist. And the one thing I, I regret not doing was have him clearly define fascism, which once again, looking to Mussolini, folks, it's real simple. One word, corporatism, political world and establishment in bed with the corporatocracy is the marriage of the corporate world and politics. That's it. It's real simple. And, well, and everything that stems well, from that, of course. Yeah, well, actually, of course, it was Mussolini who defined fascism, and that's how he defined it. So anything after that is an interpretation. That's the original definition of fascism, as you've just described it. Real simple, huh? But here's the thing is like so many people, they like to get carried away and make a big deal out of it. And then, you know, in comparison to communism left wing, right wing. And that's the whole thing. From my perspective, at least, I think there's others here that do share this view that the phony left and right duality, the way that that's played up and promoted so much, even in university political science courses. No, it's not even, especially there. Yes. Break on through, folks, that is, is my really only advice that or as was presented to us in university, as I recall, really good advice. Beware the seductive dangers of binary thinking. And just in brief, before I finish here, let me uh, just add, there is no left or right. There is either only freedom or tyranny. You know, it's statism is all it is, frankly. So, I mean, hey, Adolf Hitler or, or Joseph Stalin, pick your poison. 
<laughs> why do I? The problem with that, of course, is that the left call the left freedom and the right tyranny and the right call the left tyranny and themselves freedom. There is a dichotomy. There is a civil war coming intellectually, at least to begin with, particularly in America. But I think that's going to stretch across, certainly across Europe with the way that the left and the right are hammering each other at the moment. And it is something Orwell warned about. And perpetual war is, well, I don't know about perpetual, but certainly throughout my lifetime, there's going to be conflict between the left and the right, as well as between ideologies such as Islam and Christianity and Judaism and so on. Um, this is going to go on for the rest of our life and the rest of my life, for sure. And I'm only 52 or three now. So hopefully I've got another 50 years left to sit back and enjoy all this. What we mustn't allow is for rational thinking whether that be left or right, leaning politically minded. What we mustn't allow is for people to be afraid or cowed or beaten back by name calling. You know, there is this sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, this childhood mantra. And you've got to remember that. You know, it doesn't matter to me if I sit down at a table and question somebody's motive or evidence they have calling Trump a paedophile who will then turn around and call me a fascist because I don't believe CNN. Fine, if that's what you've got, that's all you can come up with. Call me whatever you like. That will not stop me calling you out and asking you questions. And hopefully there'll be more and more people like our good selves and many others who will sit down and, and not run away when they're called names. You're a critic of Islam, are you? You're a racist or you're an Islamophobe. Well, no, I don't have an irrational fear of Islam. So that would be a phobia. So no, you're wrong with your insults there. You can't even get that right. No, you're not a racist. Islam isn't a race and you can't convert to or from a race. So you can't get your insults right in that sense either. Think of something else, you know, and I'll sit here and wait until you do. Yeah, no, you're right on the mark there, my friend. Well said and well spoken. We've got a little more than half a dozen viewers now joining us here, uh, engaging us in the live stream. Of course, most of the plays and people that do check out the content it usually turns out to be after the fact. Uh, we prefer, of course, to promote our post-produced audio. YouTube here, you simply, uh, with respect to getting the raw feed out there and having the public, giving them a chance to engage us in real live time. Big shout out to Psycho Fire, Pirate Joe Eminon, of course. Isn't that what you'd expect, though, is for people to consume their entertainment or their information these days when they want to? I mean, the fact that there's few or many people following a live stream doesn't really make any difference. The millions will be watching it over the next one or two or three days or weeks when they want to. I don't even watch sport live anymore. I used to watch the Grand Prix motor racing every Sunday without fail. I'd watch the race and enjoy it with a beer. And, and nowadays I, I don't do that anymore. I just watch it on YouTube or on, or on another internet feed on the Monday. I watch it when I want to, when I've got a couple of hours to kill. Same with any sport, because it's available whenever you want it. No, that's exactly right. And uh, that's great as well, too. So quite convenient. And, you know, I'm eternally grateful and thankful for the technology we do have at our disposal, uh, uh, the current day and age that we live in, what I like to refer to as the age of apocalypse. Not that that's a bad thing. We've talked about it here from time to time in the past, of course. You yourself might even be aware of this, Albert. It's a Greek word that simply means unveiling is the correct English translation. So you're essentially pulling back the veil of what has been hidden for so long 
before this time, the Age of Apocalypse. We're apocaloptimists here on the Robin Hood, and we practice the view of apocaloptimism. The revealing of, that's right. We say, there we call it a revelation. There we call the apocalypse a revelation. What message have we got here? There's a message here that interested me earlier from Joey Boomer. Bangkok in Korean means cheating or plagiarizing. Now, is that some kind of localized slang or is that the actual Korean word for it? Joey Boomer is a bit of a prankster and a joker. So he's a fellow, uh, he's an American expat living here with me in, in South Korea. Basically, we have a chance to, not for a while now, but in the past we would break bread on occasion. And uh, no, he's quite a character in a card. Bangkok. There's Konglish that they've got here, maybe the same in uh, Thailand, but they call it uh, Konglishi, taking English and uh, mixing it up with Korean. And so what's known as uh, the displaced cognate, I believe, is how it works. So uh, there's something to look into for sure, the Konglishi, Konglish, C-K-O-N-G-L-I-S-H. South Korea, it's really quite hilarious. I've never heard that before, though. So it's, I think, maybe just a joke of sorts that he's trying to make. Quite funny, though. What does that Bangkok means what? <laughs> he says it means um, cheating. cheating. Or cheating. I see. Well, cheating is cunning, where you're kind of looking out the side of your eye, you know, kind of sneaking a peek at somebody else's uh, paper during the exam. I'm just looking at all these memes that are coming up on the YouTube presumably have come from my website or from my facebook page like a picture of the royal family and the, the message you're next lots of love from the working class did you get them from me that's right that's the way we produce our show we collect and gather the pictures from I'm our more guests provocative than i thought i was <laughs> i'm obviously more provocative than i realized i like this one there's a picture of a war hero in a, in a cemetery in an obviously a second world war cemetery and the message here is these bloody old people voting to leave the EU. What have they ever done for Europe? Um, which kind of sums up my feelings. The generation preceding me, our fathers and mothers, and particularly our grandparents. And now you have a bunch of snowflakes in England, this is, complaining that the old people have got no right to vote out of Europe. When we didn't even vote ourselves, we were old enough to remember the vote to vote in in the 70s in the first place. Now you have all these young students demonstrating and throwing bricks through Starbucks windows and complaining that our grandparents are voting out and it's their future we're playing with. With respect to the 70s, how, in Britain, what were you referencing with the vote exactly there? There was a vote in the 70s where there's a referendum, the previous referendum promoted as to whether we wanted to join what was then called the common market, the EEC, the European Economic whatever Community, I think it was called. And um, <laughs> Richard Nixon here, picture getting off Air Force One and the message is, I'm not a crook by today's standards. Well, that's true. He's not, is he, by today's standards? Very true. Uh, yeah, so there was a vote in the 70s that I was too young for. I was only would have only been a kid in the 70s, but my parents, obviously, and yours and everybody else's parents in, in Britain voted to join the Economic Union, which was supposed to simply be a common market. We were told it was all about getting our school uniforms for the same price as the French did, or buying our tomatoes cheaper from Spain, or buying our wine cheaper from Italy, and so on. The European common market. That then evolved into the EU, where they started without our permission and without our election, without our mandate, then imposing their laws and, and um, various other kind of um, rules and regulations upon not only the British people, but obviously industry and commerce and the markets and so on. This has been going on for years and years. 
and we've been complaining about it ever since. You know, we had to, you couldn't buy a pound of tomatoes anymore because the EU told us it had to be a kilo of tomatoes. You know, we were just losing our identity further and further, the British identity further and further to this European Union. And in the end, it's taken Farage and other people of his generation, which is my generation in our, in our 50s now, who remember, albeit being children, the whole story, have now turned around and said, hang on a minute, if there's going to be another vote here, we're out of here. We didn't want to be part of this in the first place, and we don't want to be part of it anymore. And to have our children and their children telling us that we don't know what we're doing when we've lived through it, and my parents, for example, their parents fought to keep Europe free. I'll give you an example. One of the articles I wrote as to why Britain, the EU wants us to pay 54 billion euros to leave, just as our leaving fee. This is how to get out, is pay them 54 billion euros. Well, have a guess putting you on the spot here, but have a guess when Britain, being the British people, being the British taxpayer, of which I am and everybody I know in England is, when did we finish paying our costs for the Second World War, which is when we lost hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, and were bombed by Nazi and Italian forces in in London and other cities in England? When do you think we finished paying that bill? I don't think you uh, even have yet. You're not supposed to. The point is perpetual, uh, indefinite uh, servitude and slavery. Uh, that's the way the whole system is set up. Right back to World War One and the federal well, income was... tax in the West, 1913, the founding of the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve Act, same thing in Canada. How did it uh, all unfold in Britain? Let's just get to that in a second. But let me say, Tony Blair, with respect to immigration, to consecutive elections they use this massive uh, wave and tsunami is what it seems really of foreign immigrants a lot of them now it turns out to be these radical uh, muslim types highly politicized and very much uh you know in tune and on board with the uh, the jihadi agenda the hijra as it's known and uh you know they're bound and determined on establishing world conquest but uh, yeah i mean has the debt been paid off yet i don't know probably not 2006 2006 we were paying our costs back for the war in which we helped to liberate and free spanish people italian people dutch people belgian people the lives we lost my grandfather fought in all of those campaigns as a second world war british paratrooper sixth airborne paratrooper so I have first-hand experience, or rather second-hand experience, of a lot of what went on behind the scenes and, and in front of the scenes. And they still want us to pay $54 billion to leave when we spent hundreds of billions over the course of the last 40 or 50 years liberating them. Isn't that ironic? So uh, Brexit, yeah, big deal, of course. And I don't understand why the British people aren't more up in arms. We've seen recently, of course, what has happened with respect to Tommy Robinson. As you mentioned early, yeah. earlier, Nigel Farage, who uh, a lot of people don't know this, but I believe there was actually an attempt on his life a number of years ago, or at least something that was meant to send a message to Mr. Farage that you be careful not to step out of line. Uh, it's also interesting how he has almost worked together in in some respects with Donald Trump uh, as far as the push to uh, become more patriotic and uh, exactly what you're going on about here, patriotic nationalism. How did that ever become such a bad thing or a dirty word? And why is it so much of a problem to have your own independent sovereign state while still managing to get along with other 
regions and peoples in a relatively harmonious way. That shouldn't be a problem. The vision, the will, and the means is all it really boils down to whenever we have issues like these. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, I would agree with you. Prior to um, 2000, well, prior to Brexit, so prior to 2015, or was it 16? I forget exactly. I can't remember exactly when. Certainly prior to the Trump election, I used to say if voting changed anything, we wouldn't be allowed to do it. There'd be another system in place. If voting actually changed anything and made a difference, we wouldn't be allowed to do it. That's changed. The Brexit vote changed everything. The people voted. They voted three times now. You must, you must remember this. The, the Remainers for the British Remainers for the European Union, the EU fans, are now loudly claiming that people are changing their minds and there must be another referendum. Well, you need to remember, we've had three already. There wasn't one Brexit vote. There were three. There was a general election in which David Cameron was forced to promise, to concede, to implement a referendum on the question of Europe. There's a general election in the beginning. So there was a, there's a vote there. And he got voted back in because he had promised this to referendum. Then there was the referendum. And then there was the second general election in which Angela, not Angela May, Theresa May, was voted. She was temporary prime minister before that to continue her term on the basis that she promised to go along with Brexit, a hard Brexit, which she's now reneged on as well. So we've had three elections, three votes, and all three are being reneged on by the British I suppose government, but I was going to say the Tory party, but the Labour Party are no different. They're even worse, in fact. So, and now they want a fourth one. Now, the thing about, one of the things, one of the questions that I'm asked a lot about this referendum was that the vote, I think, was 51.6% against 48.4. It was close, okay? And being so close, therefore, nearly half of the people in Britain want to remain in Europe. And that's a position I understand. You know, that's what voting is all about. Here's the thing you've got to remember about referendum, which is why they're not very popular, is they're always close. By definition, in a democracy, parliamentary democracy, referendums are going to be that close. And the reason is because opinion is divided. If opinion was 80-20 one way or the other, then that would be made part of the election. One, of, one or another party would stand on that. You wouldn't need a referendum. It would get voted for at a general election. And so they're always going to be close. It's always going to be a close thing. But no one ever says, let's do best of three. Let's have best of five. You get one chance. That's the end of it. Now, prior to the election, prior to the referendum, Brexit, personally, I was relatively ambiguous. You know, I'm fairly au fait with European and British politics, certainly. And I was quite, you know, I happen to believe in Europe. I happen to think that Britain have a big part to play in Europe and we're will do very well inside the European Union, despite their regulations and so on. I, I was in mind. But also, I know that we're a, a great country. We're a big economy. We've got a lot of clever people in London and in Britain, a lot of clever guys and girls, women that know what we're doing. We're quite capable of standing alone as well. So I didn't mind really which way the vote went. I was happy to stay and I was happy to come out. I know we're going to be OK. But it's only the behaviour, the nasty, vicious campaign Project Fear, they called it, this campaign by people like Alastair Campbell and others who wave their fingers at you and say, Britain is going down the drain. If you vote leave, you're an idiot. You're letting the children down. And it's always the children. You know, every emotive argument comes back to the, what about the children? What about the kids? No one thinks about them. It's always what they revert to as their last resort to try and persuade people. Only this vicious campaign of you've got to leave or you're an idiot turned me into a lever. They did it. If there was another vote today, I'm definitely voting leave, as will most rational, intelligent, educated British people, of which most, most are. You know, you'll find now that the split is probably nearer, you know, 60-40 or 65-35 than it is 
you know, a one or two percent swing. So bring it on. Bring on a second referendum. That's exactly what they want you to do is to keep voting until they win. And then, oh, there we go. It's decided. But if the people, if it's a populist result, well, we can't have that. Well, we got to, you know, take it to the House of Lords or somehow throw a, a wrench into the works or any tactic or stalling measure or any uh, means whatsoever so that the will of the people will not be upheld. Uh, referenda is a very integral part of democratic society, as is jury nullification. I'm not sure if you have that in Britain, but you ought to. We ought to have that here in, in South Korea as well, though the legal system is based, I guess, in the German model. And uh, the wife was even telling me not so long ago that if things come right down to it, the jury may deliver a, a ruling or a decision let's say, you know, one way or the other, guilty, not guilty, and the judge reserves the right to veto or overturn is what she's telling me, which to me makes no sense whatsoever. What's the point of having a jury if it just simply keeps going back to the Masonic judge to decide? And yeah, most of them are Freemasons if you look into things. It's interesting too, with respect to the UK and, and Freemasons, that I'm not sure if you followed the whole pedogate business but there was a sting a number of years ago and the vast majority of the people swept up and caught in that effort caught up in the net turned out to be freemasons so yeah you know isn't that a, a something it's just incredible but yeah brexit i'm quite passionate about that because maybe you know of course like yourself and others see the insanity of course and the way that Theresa may an elitist puppet was she elected I don't think so. Well, she was appointed initially, correct? She was appointed, and now she's got, she does not have a majority mandate. But uh, and then we got characters like Jeremy Corbyn, of course, who, you know, you could say good things about him, I suppose, and more critical. You can? Well, with respect to Israel, that's the main thing that comes to mind, because he's not, uh, he's critical of Israel, which I'm not sure if the two of us, you and I, concur on that whole matter, but... uh it's something worth talking about, nonetheless. That aside, it's interesting to note, going back to Orwell, 1984, and we've got to provide here, if we could, a link to Orwell's glossary of terms that he used, or that he came up with, rather, in that classic book, 1984. Completely brilliant, of course, and I think we've bypassed what he laid out in that text. We've gone far past that point now with respect to the total surveillance system. I myself, just going back to the whole business of technology, you don't have so much of a problem or any problem with technology, provided I get to choose and that it's not compelled or it's not pushed upon me. And that's where I like with Wi-Fi, as I like to call it, you know, because the 5G network and so forth. Do I have any say on where this ends or stops? I don't want that in my brain or my vital organs, of course. So I'm not sure how things <laughs> are looking on that front in the UK or Thailand or if you're a Wi-Fi fan yourself, necessarily, wasn't really what I was wanting to talk about, but uh, I've, I've just made a few notes here. Bacon, with respect to what you said there, that there was an inmate in the UK you might have heard of, something along the lines of what, you know, scenario or situation where Tommy Robinson found himself. I was quite worried, as were a number of other people, probably, but he uh, left bacon or threw bacon at a mosque or left it on the doorstep. He was imprisoned on hate crime charges. And uh, was murdered Tommy behind Robinson. 
no, no, no. This other individual was murdered no, while serving wasn't, time. It wasn't. Yeah. yeah, that was pretty awful. But, you know, just things like maybe if you have some thoughts on, uh, for example, Trudeau, number two here, of course. And there's a few other political ponderology. You were talking about perpetual warfare. Orwell discussed that whole matter. He wrote about it, of course, that uh, these never-ending wars, I think it was him, against ever-changing enemies. So that was the whole deal. And uh, Perpetual war was Orwell's yeah. thing in 1984. 1984 was about perpetual war between um, Eurasia, wasn't it, and Oceania, and kind of made up names for places that we all know exactly what he means. We all know exactly who he means as well, or meant. That was about brutal oppression, um, monitoring, um, you know, a fascistic type rule of secret police and um, cameras watching your every move on quite prophetic in many ways, because, of course, there was no such thing as a CCTV camera. In fact, you barely had televisions when Orwell was writing that. So all of it was quite prophetic and an upcoming, you know, emerging technology at, at the time. But uh, Animal Farm was a much more subtle and a much more interesting book and a much more interesting message in the sense that it was kind of like the gentle takeover. Pigs gently took over the farm and had the backing of all their people by putting the big message up on the board saying all animals are equal. And there was a list of, I think it was eight different messages or at least their manifesto, if you like, their mantra. This is how we're going to run this farm, being the world or being the country or Europe or wherever you want to set it. This is how it's going to be. And of course, every week, Chief Pig, um, Major, was it, came out and uh, rewrote the last line or rewrote the last few words. So, for example, the message on the board in the barn, all animals are equal at all times, became all animals are equal except for pigs, for his class, except for his people. And the message kept changing like this until in, and, and, only, and slowly, by the way, as well. So none of the other animals really realized it. They'd gotten used to the first message before the second one was changed. And they got used to that before the third one was changed. And by the end, eight rules that had been changed, manifesto messages, the whole story was different. The whole reason for their revolution in the first place was completely different. This is Google. This is why I wrote the article People talk about oppression and censorship and Google is 1984. Well, actually, if you look at the messages, Google is far more Animal Farm. There's a subtle rewriting going on here, as is Wikipedia. Far more subtle, daily, 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 bit by bit rewriting. One word changed, one line changed, one sentence changed, a name changed here and there. And before you know it, somebody's looking back to research an article in 10 years' time, and they're, they're reading a completely different message. All of a sudden, something didn't happen or did happen for different reasons. We saw that with 9-11. We've seen how many times that message has been changed, as is covered in my, my book, 9-11 Conspiracy, which is available at all good online retailers. It's a common thing, and it's been going on for years. I mean, Orwell was well aware of it, and it was going on long before him. The British kind of invented this with our empire building throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. You, know, you look back on some of those Indian campaigns and how they're all glorious and and successful, and there's none of the brutality. We don't read any of that in there anymore. As someone said, history is written by the winners. Yes, and I think, oh, Napoleon, history is a set of lies agreed upon. Hey, listen, we're at the top of the hour here, and we two things. We'd like to hear more about your books, the items you have for sale that people can access online, where exactly is the best place to go, uh, where you've got them available. 
we also want to talk to Drew here too. So, but before we do that and have a word with Drew, see how things are looking from up there in the crow's nest, we were thinking that maybe this is something we always question or idea we almost always float with various authors that do join us here from time to time aboard the Robin Hood Pirate Radio Podcasts flagship to the WPRPN.com network. Uh, is there any chance that you'd be able to offer a discount to our listeners if, for example, they contact you and say that they have heard the show and uh, enter in a, a little pirate code of sorts? Yeah, I don't know how to do that. What I could do is I've created from some of my books, 9-11 Conspiracy, by the way, is the first one I did. I've sat here and set up a little recording studio and I've created audio versions of the book. This is a big, booming, growing market, audiobooks. People now want to listen via their iPods and headphones and so on rather than read. And so I've got a couple of audiobooks there which they give you free vouchers. So you, I could say the first 10 people to send a message to the Albert Jack Facebook page uh, or Minds. Let's do Minds, shall we? To send a message to the Albert Jack Minds page I can send them a code and they'll be able to download 9-11 Conspiracy for free. I could do that. But I wouldn't know how to discount things because prices on Amazon online retailers are fixed, aren't they? Yeah, sometimes people do uh, have their hands tied, unfortunately. Let's turn our focus up to the crow's nest, just looking here through the hatch. And it looks like, yeah, we've got him in our sights there. Drew, how are things going? Seems to be running nice and smoothly. Anything that really jumps out at you as far as uh, the issues that we've covered here and uh, perhaps something that we're missing with respect to the, the YouTube chat? Uh, we've got to actually turn our uh, focus there. Yeah, Joey Boomer uh, said, sorry, that I was wrong. I meant cunning. Bangkok is different. Yeah, I think he thinks that I think he's offended me, which he certainly hasn't. Um, I was just interested in the comment because I know, for example, I lived for a while in Vietnam, as I mentioned earlier, and other countries around Thailand, Laos, Myanmar, Cambodia, Vietnam, are quite critical of the Thai way of life or the Thai thinking, if you like. I mean, one of their comments is if somebody's acting like an idiot or cheating or lying or doing something, they'll say in their own language, of course, don't turn Thai on me, turning Thai on me. Oh, racism. Oh, racism. It, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. They're all the Asian race. So hold it. Oh, tribalism? How, how, what label are we going to give that one? So you can't say that, huh? I call it humor. Right. Yeah. Oh, but, well, of- well, we'll have to pass a law outlawing humor then, I suppose, right? So can't have that. Well, that's where things are headed. You know, with the muzzling, the science of people, it's really awful, of course, that Orwell, he did see the writing on the wall. He saw what was coming down the pike. And speaking of pike, I'd like to actually tie this in, Orwell and Albert Pike. You've done some, I believe, based on what I'm seeing here on your page, a little bit of a it's a blog of sorts, or I'm not sure, is that a book? There's an article about Albert Pike. There's a blog, if you like, or a feature article on albertjack.com. I think it's in the Jack Report, but you may you may find it under the book section. And there's a link from that article to his book, not my book, his book, Morals and Dogba, which is the blueprint for the Masonic Freemason kind of movement, if you like. Pike started it all in 18, whatever it was, and also predicted at the time 
predicted at the time there would be three world wars. The two we know about now, which was were after his prediction, and the third he predicted would be the ongoing conflict with Islam. Pike predicted this, I think it was 1873, a good long time ago. And that's all in the morals and dogma where you can find the rights of the ancient Freemason and his basic blueprint for the whole movement. Pike started it all, I believe. Don't you think, based on your research then, uh, that Orwell was hip to these ideas and what was in store for the world as far as the future course of destiny was concerned? Uh, with You know, you're looking at, once again, his writings in 1984, Oceania, Eurasia. There's the other third continent that escapes me, but basically along these sort of lines, Europa. precisely what we're... Europa, Oceania, and an Asiana. There we go. That's right. And two minutes of hate. The Ministry of Truth, let's not forget, too. You've done some work uh, or research, investigation, looking at Wikipedia, the way that they routinely censor the going, I guess, you know, so much down the memory hole, what you've talked about here, the way that history is being rewritten, which I personally think is great that there's revisionism. You need constantly to have a conversation. But who's in charge of moderating it? As I wrote about in Last Man in London, in the New World Order and the Bilderberg Conspiracy, which is my book, Last Man in London, I wrote about that very thing there because I have my central character working at what Orwell would have regarded as the Ministry of Truth, but he's working in a completely different department. He's working on e-books and all the old poems. I mean, for example, one of my character's jobs is he's got Charles Dickens' book. The thing about e-books, you see, is once you've downloaded it onto your iPad or your e-reader or whatever device you're using, it can be changed at any time. Anybody can go into the central database, change the ending of a book, even if it's a novel or any news item, anything at all, change it and then fire out to the billions of devices that it's sitting on. So by the time you get to the end of that story, the ending could be different. And this is what my character's doing in Last Man in London. His job is to take the religious aspect. Religion has been banned worldwide within 30 years' time, according to The Last Man in London. And um, his job is to rewrite Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. For a start, he's retitled it. It's now called A Winter's Tale. Line by line, any reference or any word relating to religion at all, he's just changing it. And as soon as he's done his day's work, he fires it out to all the devices that have this story loaded. And by the time somebody gets to that line, they read a new version. My character, George, who was, by the way, was named after George Orwell. Um, that's how my character, George, is going about his day in 30 years' time. It's just rewriting He's in a whole department. His friends are all working on different subjects. You know, one of his girlfriends is rewriting Tennyson, for example. All the Tennyson poems are being changed to take out references. The power, the time, don't want... But they're not being deleted. They're just being changed. It's all being rewritten. Mini True. Double plus good. Do you remember the, the Mini True? What did that refer to exactly? This kind of snipping, rendering more concise, I suppose, but also spinning in a way that, uh, you know, politically correct. I think that was a central part of uh, and theme to 1984 as well, that you damn better be politically correct or you would end up finding yourself taken to room 101. Yeah, indeed. The, ho the home of your biggest fears. By the way, I did a lot of interviews at Broadcasting House in, in the BBC back when I was still living in London. Broadcasting House Centre in Great Portland Street. It's the old building. You can Google it and look at it. It's a great old sort of Victorian building where the BBC would still sit. 
And Orwell, during the Second World War, one of his jobs was to, um, he, I think he, he had a radio. He used to broadcast to Asia, I think, because he was a Burmese policeman, wasn't he? He was familiar with Asia. And he used to broadcast on the World Service. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling there. His actual studio, with his door on it, was Room 101. That was where he broadcast from at the BBC. And I've even been down. I even had people, I'm going to do interviews for various other Radio 1 and other shows. And I've said to somebody before, can you take me to see Room 101? And it's still there. It's still there, Room 101 on the door, down this corridor. There's about 30 of them. And you get to Room 101. And that's where Orwell used to sit and broadcast from. I think I saw that actually in a documentary, hopefully still up online. People can find it via... YouTube, of course, but uh, they've been renovating as of late, if I'm not mistaken. George Orwell, though, I, he's got his critics as well, too, which try to lambaste him or attack him because of his apparent socialist leanings or uh, sympathies. But for me, that's a total non-issue. Well, it's a red herring, which, if you could, make clear to our listeners, because perhaps some of them aren't fully aware of the origins of that expression, as well as how it's used in a logical context with respect to logical fallacies. And on top of that, let me just say that one of the things that really gets to me, well, I I just can't believe the way things are, but not everybody in the world is rational, nor do they care to act in a rational way. And so that's if we come along and try to point out certain logical fallacies, in a person's argument and the information they're presenting, claims that are being made and so forth, there are people out there who just, they don't care whatsoever and are more than happy to come in and upset the apple cart wherever they can just to cause total chaos and discord, if you follow what I'm getting at. so It's one of the things that the internet has brought to society, particularly Facebook and other social media, Instagram um, platforms, is a, a sense of um, self-importance and a, and a sense of, I don't know, exhibitionism. People are provoking people all over the place to try and create attention for themselves in all sorts of ways, from the Kardashians down to whoever that guy was you had on your show the other week. You know, it's an attention-seeking sort of platform, isn't it? The whole point of it, it seems to me. Going back to Red Herring, did you want the answer to that? Have we got time? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we can uh, overshoot the mark a little bit here, so it's not a problem. Red Herring. I'll do it just quickly then, because it's an interesting, it's one of the interesting idioms. It's where kind of Red Herrings came from. Back in the day, England, you see, in Great Britain, people regard us a big, powerful, worldwide nation. It's important to remember, actually, for us English-British people, that we're actually from a quite a small island. We've got quite a small island mentality, and we're from a small island out in the North Sea, off the coast of Europe. We have our own identity in that sense. But our, our diet, going on to the red herring, our diet would obviously be fish and seafood back in the day. In the pre-refrigeration and pre-electronic days of uh, 17th and 18th centuries, the way we preserve our food on the coastlines to get it into the cities, the inner cities, Birmingham, London, so on, would be to preserve it by salting it or smoking it. Now, everyone knows salted or smoked herring, which is the natural fish around the British Isles, turns the reddy brown colour. So all this smoked herring would go into the cities and villages in the towns on their horse and carts and would last for months on end. One of the side effects of this is it creates quite a pungent smell. Now, back in those days, there used to be an early version of the fox hunt saboteurs. They used to grab these bundles of herring, run out in front of the lords and the nobles who were out on their fox hunts with their dogs, and trail these herrings, and the hounds would follow the scent of these red herrings. So the hounds would follow the false clue 
and away from the foxes. And the foxes warren or den would be kept safe and the hounds would be you know, diverted in a different direction by the saboteurs who were using the red herrings to confuse them. That's how the term red herrings became part of our language to denominate or to account for a false clue, a false lead. That's right. A rhetorical, uh, well, I'm not sure if device is necessarily the best word, but just a rhetorical, something that you can pull out of the toolbox, I suppose, when you're engaged in an argument with anybody, if you don't necessarily want to play fair, or if you're just joking around, throw out the red herring there and have people, you know, the audience thrown off the, lose their focus. Better known these days as fake news. Everyone's at it. Right. So, oh, there's so much to be said for that disinformation, Operation Mockingbird. You know, then the CIA, I'm sure it's the same with respect to England as well. That MI5, I'm not sure, MI6, I think mostly work abroad. But the BBC has got to be absolutely replete and riddled with MI5 assets or plants, uh, just as it is in, you know, the West once again, USA, Canada, good old CSIS there, and uh, beyond every single country pulling the same crap so that when we come along, the independent, underground, alternative, you know, genuine uh, fifth estate, that's a bit of a problem, I guess, isn't it? If we're not in any way controlled, bought and sold, uh, yeah. we, our opinions and ways of viewing uh, the issues, insights, and information, they, it's, you know, I think presents something of a problem. But great. That's wonderful, frankly, because... And it's also an uphill battle. I mean, the article we've spoken, you mentioned it briefly before, the article I wrote on how Wikipedia has been turned into fake news, which is on albertjack.com, details how the editing process of Wikipedia is engaged in an Orwellian rewriting of information. If you go and Google any, almost any question now, Wikipedia will be one of the first links that comes up on DuckDuckGo, Yahoo, and all the search engines. Well, the editorial policy there is fake. There is a team of editors who are changing things to adopt a leftist perspective. We mentioned before, you know, certain statues that are being pulled down in America. I think General Lee, one of his statues was pulled down in that uprising last year, something to do with the Charlottesville protest at the time. You go and look at Wikipedia now and you'll find out what a racist, slave-owning, you know, whipping boy he was or, or brutal because Wikipedia has been altered to reflect that. But, of course, it's not true. You can go back and look at the Encyclopedia Britannica or any reliable source of information and you'll find General Lee was actually not a slave owner and his wife and daughter spent a lot of money educating the children of slaves down in the Deep South in the 1800s. He was the reverse of what he's now being portrayed as and being you know, urinated on, and or his statue rather, and spat on and kicked and pulled down. He was actually you know, on the side of the good guys. Uh, but that's not what Wikipedia or what the left want you to believe. And so it's been rewritten. Almost all of it is like that, because they have editorial policy in place, which is deliberately altering facts and information. And most people are using it as the basis of their facts and information. If not now, they will be for the next generation or two. Oh, well, absolutely. Hashtag fact check. That's one of the problems is that when... As is Snopes, whenever somebody sends me a message saying, you've got this wrong, look at Snopes, I just have a quiet laugh to myself. I think there are people still believe that that is a fact check. Well, I guess the couple that runs that operation, I long suspected they were CIA assets. Certainly, I mean, you could refer to them if you so 
chose as useful it gets. There's quite a few of this type out there, of course, and they're cashing in big time, too. But he himself, it's kind of a, a side issue, I suppose. But if you look at his character, he's got a lot of bills that he's racked up on his credit card with respect to his ordering call girls. And I'm not sure what else is, is on there, but uh, they're they're kind of, they're wingnuts themselves, apparently, too. Uh, do you know much about the Snopes couple, exactly, as far as specifics are concerned? No, not reliably, no. I don't, I don't immerse myself in such people. You know, I know a little bit about them and a little bit about their behavior, as you've just mentioned, but that's kind of about all. I don't, I'm not interested in getting any deeper in there. What's it got to do with me? I just don't look at Snopes, as, as I would recommend everybody else to do, not look at Snopes. Why exactly? Because it isn't true. It sets itself up there as a fact checker, you know, and there's certain information on there, and they, because Snopes marks it true or gives it a big red tick or, or, sorry, a big red cross or a big green tick, so it must be. As I mentioned earlier, you know, so often I get sent messages saying, no, 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 you've got that wrong. Just check Snopes, you'll see you're wrong. But I'll think, well, you know, that's what you're using as a terms of reference and i'm not surprised you don't get it wikipedia has gone the same way you know i've been looking at stuff on wikipedia and it, and it is it also is mainly only political i mean if you looked up something for example on wikipedia about lord nelson and the battle of trafalgar or the battle of copenhagen it's probably pretty well accurate over the time but you've got you know professors of sociology and politics of various universities around the world who are Daily. I mean, one of these one of these guys has done something like 13,000 edits on Wikipedia pages. You've got British politicians. I can think of George Galloway as one who's a pretty outspoken politician. Well, his Wikipedia page is virtually all lies now. He brands him as this and that and a phobe and, a, you know, a hater of Israel and a Zionist, on the other hand, and a lover of this. And, you know, it's just and I've met Galloway a couple of times. I've done, you know, hour or two long interviews such as this one with him in the studios. Guy's a very intelligent, reasonable, rational guy, very likable guy, very well informed. You read his Wikipedia page, you'll think he's a ranting maniac. It's not fair. He has no right of changing it, nor does anybody connected to him. It's the Wikipedia way. You can't edit any information about yourself. It's wrong. It shouldn't be allowed. But everyone uses it as their source of reference. You go Wikipedia, George Galloway, George Galloway, British politician, and you read about what a ranting lunatic he is, hate-filled, this and that. And then take it from me that he's a lovely, charming, intelligent, articulate, well-informed, logical thinker. Because I, and I've met him many times. You can see the difference. Oh, yeah. With us here operating in the digital underground, trying to maybe yeah. win a little wider exposure, pick up a, a broader audience. Well, you know, that's just the way it's going to have to be, I guess, then. So we're willing to yeah, uh, yeah, bide our yeah. time. Let them have it. That's right. I'm, yeah. I'm up for it. I've got, as I say, hopefully 50 years left of this. I'm up for it. I'm in it for the long <laughs> term. So are you, I, I gather. Mm. So, yeah, George Galloway. And here's the thing is that along with him and Corbyn uh, and anyone, uh, you do know of a few other British politicians as well. Anytime you come out in opposition to Israel, you put yourself immediately in the crosshairs. This is one of the reasons why Alex Jones and the censorship of him quite recently in InfoWars is a separate issue and something where I personally am in support of InfoWars backing him, uh, regardless of what you people may think of the guy, with respect to, well, his gatekeeping and, and, and his uh, views and position on Israel. He let it slip one time that I've heard him 
on the record, which I can't even remember the exact context, but he made it clear that the reason that he doesn't make such a big thing of Israel is the globalists. Always the glo- you never hear Zionists, you know, or world Zionism. It's a globalist. It's, like, it's not even part of his vocabulary. It will come for the likes of Jones when he understands, and I mean that with respect, because I, I kind of am on board with a lot of what he does and says anyway. And also don't forget some of it's an act. He's out there being provocative to gain oh, yeah. clicks, yeah. readers and oh, viewers, you know, oh, no, yeah. in no other way than any national tabloid newspaper would run a big headline, a big controversial headline, you know, London bus was found on the moon, you know, obviously bullshit, but everyone does it. And Jones is no different in, in his way. But what he'll come to understand about the so-called globalists of Israel, and I'm no supporter of that, by the way, but what they do there, what what normal people, you and me and Jones and citizens of Israel have to put up with from their neighbours who may or may not go unnamed or unidentified. It depends on how you want your show to go. But the people surrounding Israel who want them dead and driven into the sea will be coming through Europe next if they're not already and will be coming to America and Canada after that. Israel is where we find out what we will have to do to compete and to deal with this threat and this menace that is coming our way. And you look at the Israelis and the Israeli citizens and what they've had to do and the horrible things they've had to endure and the horrible way they've had to behave too to keep themselves safe from their neighbours. It's something that's coming to Paris, London, Manchester, New York, Toronto, all over the West if we don't get a stop to it. Emmanuel Goldstein. What kind of a name is that? I wonder what Orwell's... It's Israel where we find out what we've got coming to us next and what we're going to have to do to keep ourselves safe. That's where you need to look, is Israel. And if you think they're really misbehaving in their way they deal with building walls and knocking down houses, well, fair enough to have that opinion. But it's coming to us next. Remember that. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, it's... And the, your children and your schools and your grandchildren and so on. There was an article that came across my uh, the news feed here just the other day ended up on the ship's news desk that by 2050, Canada is on course to become a majority Muslim country. 2050. Yeah, Yeah, as is Sweden, as is Denmark, as is Germany. Well, maybe not so much Germany, but they've got a huge population there. And it's unsustainable. You know, another one of my articles, you know, is Islam compatible with the West? Is Islam really compatible with the West? And I go on there to list, you know, all the differences in lifestyles and beliefs and you can draw your own conclusions as to whether you think i'm right or not i'm just looking at a message here i'd really like to hear your guest's opinion on the moon landings i've just been asked well did we really go to the moon the thing is if we didn't or if the americans didn't if the apollo mission didn't then i think there would be so many competing interests who would have found a way of pointing out that it was a lie in the sense that the Russians were watching and they had technology at the time too. The Indians were up there, the the Chinese. Everybody was so closely watching this space program of the late 60s. If it hadn't happened, somebody somewhere would have discovered or would have been able to monitor or have proof these pictures were taken in the underground, you know, under desert cave in Arizona or whatever that claim and prediction is. I mean, nowadays it's probably easier to create a false narrative with false evidence. But I just think back in the 60s, it would have been a whole lot more difficult to keep something like that secret if it hadn't happened. And also people point to the fact, well, no one ever went back. You know, if it was easy enough first time, if Armstrong and Aldrin and co did really go to the moon, why didn't we just keep going back? Well, because the answer to that is easy. It's because of the cost of it. 
And because the first time they went there, I think three missions actually landed, or certainly two landed in the end. There's nothing there. You know, what for? We've got our soil samples and our rock samples and our atmospheric samples and our photographs and so on. And, and so the argument against another mission to the moon is, why? <laughs> we know there's nothing there. You know, there's no oil or, or resource that we can import back to planet Earth that's going to be useful to us. And so that's why it hasn't happened again. I kind of believe on evidence that it did happen, although I do, by the way, understand all the arguments against and some of those make sense to me as well if that kind of doesn't make my position too ambiguous i can understand why people don't believe it happened put it that way but for me the weight of evidence is in favor it looks like we're about uh, scheduled here too to wrap things up wind things down it's been a great hour and a half now Strangely, not as clear as it was the other day when we were conversing via South Korea to, uh, well, the Bangkok, Thailand region. I'm not sure if you really wanted to get into specifics or not. I know you said you were in the Pattaya region. I think that's how you pronounce the name. Pattaya, Pattaya. Uh, yeah, more north of that, between Pattaya and Bangkok, really. What a beautiful country. And, uh, you know, many uh, beautiful women, beautiful people, I suppose, too, just generally. Beautiful climate, beautiful food, beautiful beaches sometimes when they're not yeah. full of rubbish. You know, if they were a little more laid back and lax uh, with respect to their the phony marijuana laws, I would be a lot more inclined to retire at a location or a place like Thailand. Cambodia, I guess, is a little more cool about things as far as that goes. But what's the deal there then? Just uh, in brief, I suppose, from what I understand, I guess there are people, they are able to get their hands on various quantities of pot and, and hash and other substances, but it's also, it's a big risk that they're running too with uh, serious consequences. Yeah, but there doesn't seem to be any shortage of risk takers. I mean, every week there's a big meth bust here and a pot bust there and a heroin bust up in the north somewhere in the old golden triangle, as they call it. You know, if you're a follower of the news here, then drug busts are... Uh, are as regular as traffic accidents, it seems to me. So there seems to be no shortage of people taking risks. I don't know what the consequences are, whether they're able to buy themselves out of trouble or not. As rumour has it, they are. But I, I imagine the little guy, the foot soldiers, are all locked up in some horrible hellhole somewhere and never to see the light of day again. It's a strange system they have here. It's bizarre. I mean, the amount of people, they are Australians, foreigners, Europeans, Westerners, are getting stopped at one of the airports or one of the seaports, almost weekly, you know, two or three times a week, someone's getting stopped somewhere for doing something with a huge case full of, or even truck full of drugs. The other day, there was a bust here, 45 million meth tablets. 45 million. How big a, what is that, an articulated lorry or a shipping container or something? How much, you know, how do you, where do you put that many? I don't know. Who takes these risks? Big business, obviously, and I suppose a lot of it is uh, a lot of the trafficking takes place uh, via places such as the clubs, I'd imagine. You know, that's uh, one of the primary destinations you would think these transactions would be occurring, possibly even the same sort of case here in South Korea. I myself, though, as, as with you, I mean, the last time I was out to a club has been quite a while now. So, uh, not, not, oh gosh, well, really back in the day there. 
married and uh, settled down, uh, you know, domestic life, two cats, and a lot of other things to attend to. So, yeah, if I was single and maybe looking to hook up <laughs> with somebody uh, on a semi-regular basis, that would be the way I would probably go about doing things, but it's just not what I've got on the agenda. It's a young man's game, isn't it, drugs? It's a young man's game. Well, well, and then the womanizing, chasing women, clubbing, and the whole scene, you know, they're just raising hell, basically. So it was great to see one of the things that uh, Turdeau actually did right. I guess I should call him Trudeau in this, in this instance. He was instrumental in living up to his promise of legalizing uh, weed, as it were, over in Canada. I'm not sure that, you know, the devil's always in the details, as they say, too. So I have yet to really look into that. There are bound to be criticisms. I guess Tommy Chong, who you're probably, you've heard of, I'm assuming, comedian and uh, social commentator and so forth. Uh, I'm not really down with a lot of Tommy's politics, or even people like uh, Abby Martin, let's say, of uh, formerly RT News. She's now on Minds.com, believe it or not. So working on maybe connecting a little more with her. So, you know, see how that goes here over time. But yeah, I can still respect them and appreciate them. Even And there there are parts of what they put out there that I do, I'm down with. You know, so that's just speaking from a personal standpoint. Whether listeners agree with anything that is floated, of course, and finds its way out on the airwaves via the cybersphere, as it were, is totally up to them, of course. There's there's no... Pirates are very... We're very open and classical liberals, believe it or not, which the, the politics and the English language, once again, going back to Orwell's famous essay, the way that these terms would become meaningless over time, of course, too, the way they're just... I'm not sure it's how that all comes about. You could add something more to that. Maybe we'll we'll get into that more in depth in the the back end of things here with the uh, the after show. But let me just finish going back to Trudeau. That it was great that he did help to legalize. He was instrumental in that. He did live up to his promise. You know, as with Obama, I can give him credit for a few things too. Not too many, but that's one of them, I suppose. Uh, and also this recent international relations with. Saudi Arabia, I guess there is a human rights activist who's currently facing execution in Saudi Arabia, and I don't really understand why. I haven't exactly managed to get down to the bottom of things, but it seems because of nothing less than her taking a stand in support of human rights in Saudi Arabia. So how dare you speak of human rights? Off with your head. And uh, amazingly, Trudeau is standing up to this. And I give him credit for that. It could all be stagecraft or stage play. Just uh, who knows what the deal is there exactly. It definitely seems to be making some waves and causing some ripples, though, as far as the hostility between... Is, is she Canadian? Well, that's is the thing. Right? Yeah, I haven't looked too much into the particulars, but it's been a real uh, row, as the Brits would say. And who knows where it's all going to lead to. I can't believe that they're actually executing human rights activists. That is utterly insane. And that's another reason I voted with my feet. I chose Korea a long time ago as, you know, many criticisms that you could offer, you know, that it's not China who are, you look at the way that they've dealt with Tibet over the years, as well as the Falun Gong, you know, so that's one thing, as well as just the communist non-democratic agenda. I mean, for crying out loud, they've got this leader that's been in power now for, how many years, uh, and uh, it now looks like he's going to be 
dictator for life from the sounds of things mm. along the lines of a, like another Putin almost. So yeah. that's no good, but, uh, that's all I really got to say as far as Trudeau is concerned. Other than that, with respect to the Muslim Islamophobia nonsense and uh, the gender pronoun garbage, that's where he's jihadi Justin Turdo, you know, so mm. sorry. But where there's things that are done that I think are positive and warrant credit and praise, then it's okay, Trudeau. Good job. You know, and uh, that's just me. And I'm an engaged citizen, you see. Uh, some might refer to us as activists, but that's kind of pejorative, the way that term over the years is kind of, uh, you know, those bloody activists. So we prefer the term engaged citizens. Let's hear a little more as far as your websites are concerned, where people can contact you. Of course, Minds.com, Albert uh, Jack. What else are we looking at there, my friend? Uh, Facebook, Albert Jack UK. I'm on Gab. The website is albertjack.com. There's a subscription facility there. I think it's Chimp List, is it, or Chimp MailChimp? Anyway, it's, you can put your email address in there and get regular updates. I say regular. I probably only do it once every couple of weeks. Or we only do it once every few weeks. So you're not inundated by any means. But if an interesting story or an interesting position comes up on any of the things we've talked about here, then that will go on to albertjack.com. And if you put your email in there, you'll get an email whenever that does. Mines as well. We run the Bangkok Jack website, mainly a news news and features website, Asia-based. It's all Asia-based stories or information or, or things that will interest English-speaking expats in Asia. So there might be the odd Trump story or European story or Trudeau story, but it's geared at people living in Asia with the English language. Um, where else are we? BitChute, that'll be Albert Jack. YouTube is Albert Jack. Spreaker is the podcast that I'm developing at the minute. That's also, I think that's Albert Jack. Anyway, if you Google Albert Jack or Spreaker search Albert Jack, you'll find my, I've got three podcasts there. One of them is Wonderful Words, which is the explanation of the origins and history of the idioms that we mentioned earlier in the shape of red herrings. So I do as many of them as I can fit in. There's the Jack Report. So all my own written stories are in there. And then there's Mysteries. I wrote a book of mysteries called Albert Jack's Mysterious World where I cover all the great subjects like the Loch Ness Monster and the Bermuda Triangle and Bigfoot crop circles and all these famous world mysteries. And so I'm now turning that into a podcast and an audio book as well. So you get loads of great mysteries on there too. So come and find me. You'll find me somewhere, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, that's great. You're all over the place. And it's great that you've managed to get more involved on Minds.com, learning the ropes as it were. So uh, there's another expression. <laughs> you could uh, probably, I, I'd imagine, show me the ropes. Very much a uh, naval, naval pirate. We've got Talk Like a Pirate Day coming up here in September, too. So you might want to keep that marked off on your calendar if you're interested in uh, dropping by and uh, being a part of things. But we've got to shift the focus now to the after show. Before we do that, Drew, just any final little comments regarding uh, today's live stream episode 119 with Albert Bangkok Jack. Yeah, um, Joey Boomer had a question. What does Albert think about Queen and royal family and or the marriage? I'm fairly indifferent to the British royal family. I'm not an anti-monarchist in the sense or an anarchist, if you like. I'm not really anything like that. More of a more of a Republican. I'm quite indifferent to them. I don't really care. I think the Queen does a pretty good job and has done and is quite a good symbol for Britain. I know there are a lot of countries that wish they hadn't cut the heads off their kings and queens years ago. America and France, I know, are 
be pretty keen to have a royal family. So I'm not anti them in that sense, but the younger generation couldn't care less about the leftist Prince William and Prince Harry and who he marries. And I thought their behaviour towards President Trump, I'm not particularly a big Trump fan either, by the way. I'm really a big supporter of his. Appreciate a lot of what he's done for the world, by the way, not just America. But the treatment of him, I don't know if you saw, go back and look at the pictures of when Trump met the Queen at Windsor. You know, I've never seen before Queen Elizabeth standing on her own on a platform. No aides, no family, no husband, no son, no daughters, no princes, no nothing. Just her on her own. Stood on a windy day outside Windsor Castle waiting for the president's motorcade to turn up. Prince Charles, Harry, William, you might have your issues with Donald Trump. You might have your leftist Meghan Markle influenced political issues. But trust me. I thought that was an utter disgrace, as far as I'm concerned, marks the beginning of the end. Not because of her, but the generations that are coming up to take her place. The ones that are all queuing up to get their fingers in her till when she dies. 92, can't be long. The rest of them, the lot that are coming next, not interested. Shall I get down off the fence and tell you how I really feel? Well, we're all about just having an open uh, conversation here and uh, airing people's views and opinions no holds barred here so it's all good to me i'm sure again on my website albertjack.com you'll find the article in the jack report trump visit reveals the british royal family are no longer fit for purpose and that's where i list my argument about british royal family so there's some royal stuff in there if anyone's interested in reading what i feel about them and that otherwise do your own research like i always say and uh, don't rely on wikipedia absolutely so on that note, we are going to head on out to the after show, either the, the Howling Wolf Inn, the Mossy Winch, or the, geez, there's a third one too. Is it the, the Howling Wolf, the Mossy Winch, and Scurvy Where Dog? Where are we going, by the way? Oh, it's the Rogues Gallery after show, just down back into, uh, after steering the ship back around into the harbor here, Mystic Bay, heading off down into Skullport Harbor for... Uh, a flagon or two of grog, really, is, is what we'd be looking at, along with any other miscellaneous substances. Via Skype here, hopefully, less uh, all the static we've been experiencing to this point. You just hold on. All you got to do is mute yourself, and I will be in touch with you just momentarily here after we put together our little outro. So just a simple mute, and we're set to go. Thanks, everybody, for engaging us here, being a part of things. Episode 119 with British expat author... Albert Bangkok Jack. It's been a good one. Be sure, as always, to check us out via Facebook, Twitter, of course, uh, YouTube here, Pirate Radio Podcasts, Minds.com, Pirate Radio Network, my personal channel, just simply Jaffe Ryder, Drew Lima, Sons and Daughters of Liberty, as well, too, can easily be found via pretty much any simple, straightforward DuckDuckGo search. We have got the... World Pirate Radio News, show segment number 22, coming up later this Tuesday night. That's 12 o'clock noon Wednesday in Tokyo and Seoul. I believe that would be probably around 10 o'clock in the morning Wednesday in Bangkok. Hope you enjoyed things here, folks. Gotten something out of the conversation. I know I've had a great time. We're working, of course, as well, too, in getting that Minds World Indie Music Showcase out to you next week. we really got to put a lot into it to see that come about and uh, produced. 
we're going to do our damnedest here to uh, make that happen and provide that for your listening pleasure. Let's not forget, we're also always looking for new Patreon supporters, of course, too. If you've enjoyed any of the content we provided over the last couple of years and found it intellectually stimulating or rewarding to any significant degree, be sure to join us over there, patreon.com forward slash WPRPN. PayPal as well, straightforward donations cutting out the middleman entirely, as well as the mines wires. Those tokens work really well. All you got to do is scroll down the left-hand side of the screen, any channel that you're on, click on the green rectangular-shaped banner on the left-hand side, just at the bottom of the channel description, and share with them as many tokens as you like. Remember, half of everything that we offer here, courtesy of the Robin Hood, goes directly to charity. Thanks once again to Albert Bangkok Jack. He's going to be making his books available to the first 10 people who contact him via having listened to the show here. I think what he said was simply state that you've tuned in to the show, episode 119, and figured that you'd reach out to him and try to get your hands on a book. I think he said he's going to do that completely free of charge. Can you believe that? Quite amazing. So many thanks. Until we meet again out on the high digital seas, on behalf of Captain Long John Sinclair and all the rest of the crew here on the Robin Hood, I'm your host as always, the ship's chief communications officer, Jaffe Ryder. Tally-ho. I know. There we be. Having carefully looked over each of our navigation panel instruments, checking every level, switch, dial, cable, knob and pulley, by all accounts and indications, we indeed see it's time once again to drop anchor inside Mystic Bay and draw an end to another week of Pirate Radio Podcasts. Remember... If you're looking for a little more lively online action, keep in mind we've likely got yet another great free-flowing rogues gallery after show coming up for the next hour in either Skype, Google Hangouts, or Peer.im. Also, if you've in any way enjoyed or found yourself benefiting from the shows we've tirelessly produced over the past two years, you might want to drop by our Patreon tip jar page. Lend a little support. Half of all network donations go directly to charity. Help to keep those numbers growing over on Patreon, and we'll be able to extend even more of a generous pirate hand. Looking forward now to the balance of 2018, we're still not quite yet booked. So if you yourself have a new, novel, intriguing, or otherwise underreported idea unique individual, or pressing item in mind, be sure to either drop us a line directly over on WPRPN.com or fire us a quick email via PirateOneRadio at gmail.com. We're always open to exploring fresh creative suggestions, intriguing guest ideas, cutting-edge discussion topics, and captivating themes. 
You can further embark on your own personal pirate journey by either liking, commenting on, subscribing to, or just following us via virtually any mainstream social media platform, including Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Minds.com. So don't forget to become engaged. Until we meet again out on the high digital seas, I'm your host as always, the ship's chief communications officer, Javi Ryder. Tally ho.